The most difficult achievement on earth is to realize peace. To realize peace. You know this on a personal level. You can be having a good Saturday, can't you? And then you can get just the wrong text that's a little bit subtle. Maybe it's just the wrong, just the wrong tone or just a little bit confusing, but you, you get that text and you can be having a pretty good day and then immediately it changes your tone. Immediately it changes your day and a good day turns into an anxious one. You can be just telling your husband or just telling your wife about how good your kids are doing and about how you thought, man, maybe they would never figure things out, but now finally they're doing so well and things are going so well for them. And then on the turn of a dime, on just the newest information that you get, how things can be seemingly going so well to going so poorly overnight, right? So you know it on a personal level, how, how difficult peace is to achieve, how difficult peace is to know. And we know it on a global level, don't we? G world peace is like that, that typical funny uh, beauty pageant answer, like, like what are you going to pursue? I'm going to pursue world peace, right? I mean, we, we know that because we, we can't even have peace in our, in our homeowners association, right? Like, like, you don't even have peace in your subdivision. So, like, to pursue peace on, like, some kind of, like, world level seems impossible. A after World War I and the Treaty of Versailles, they, they had this idea, and it seemed like a brilliant plan. They were going to bring all of these world powers together, and they were going to have their military might and their political clout in the League of Nations, right? And it was going to be the war, war to end all wars, and they were going to have all of these, these united military powers together so that if anybody decided they were going to get this idea of war again, they would just kind of, like, say, no, you know, and they would kind of put them back into their place and it was going to bring world peace and they were just going to demand it by by political and military force and then of course world, world war ii happened right and we realized that was all just a pipe dream so so what we can say clearly is is that the achievement of peace that is that is the most that, that is the most difficult to attain, obtain uh, achievement in all of mankind. And that is preaching something to us, brothers and sisters. That is preaching to something to us. That is preaching to, to us that we are not living according to the design of God. We are not living in the kingdom of God, fully surrendered and fully submitted to the reign of God. And so what we are going to see this morning is that we are going to see that Jesus came so that one day each one of us, every one of us would know an everlasting, forever, ultimate, total and complete peace. A peace that is without threat. A peace that is without enemy. A peace that is without a doubt going to be forever and without enemy. We're coming into our Advent series, and as we come into our Advent series, I realize that we've got some new folks with us, and I'm excited that you're here, and I'm excited that maybe since last Christmas season that you've kind of come into our church family, and so you hear Advent, and maybe you kind of think, well, that's, that's pretty Catholic. I thought, I thought this was a Baptist church, and maybe for you, like, Advent is just a funny word for heretic, and, and so... 
Um, that's a new thing for you. So, so let me just kind of reset and tell you why we celebrate. Advent is just like a Latin word for the word coming. Um, and, and it's really, it, it predates the Catholics, okay? Like, like it goes way back to like the third century and the early church. Um, and all that, do, all that means is, is that we celebrate the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ, all right? And not only do we celebrate the first coming of Christ, but we are waiting expectantly, excitedly for the second coming of Christ, all right? So, so Advent, Advent is the season in which the church looks back to the, to the first coming of Christ and waits excitedly and expectedly, worshipfully for the second return of Christ. And so it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and so we are excited to do that together. So if you have your Bibles, with you. Uh, now, would you turn with me to the minor prophet of Hosea? Hosea. Now, I, I, I probably know you pretty well. You may not be able to turn right to it. So use your table of contents, all right? I, I'm not going to judge you. This is the judgment-free zone. We're like Planet Fitness here, all right? This is the judgment-free zone. So y- use your table of contents, and, uh, and it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle of your Bible before you get to the New Testament. It's in your minor prophets, all right? So when you get to Hosea chapter 5, would you stand with me? as we prepare to read God's Word together. Now you guys are going to like this. I couldn't handle water, so they brought fire up here. I kept pouring water on myself, so now I'm going to set myself on fire. Alright. I seem to be in a kind of a mood this morning, huh? I don't know. I don't know. Alright. Hosea chapter 5. Verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Not Hosea. (laughs) I've done that all week, y'all. Not Hosea. Micah. Micah chapter 5. My apologies. I told Megan, I told Megan before I came up here, I said, I'm going to say Hosea. I'm going to say Hosea. Not Hosea. We're not in Hosea. Hosea is not really a great Christmas passage. In Hosea, the prophet marries a hooker, okay? (laughs) Not Hosea, all right? Micah, Micah chapter 5, all right? Micah, but you're not far. If you made it to Hosea, you're not far from Micah. All right, Micah chapter 5. Y'all look so confused. That's the only reason I even picked up on it. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have fun here, all right? This doesn't count against my time. (laughs) All right. If you're with me, and if you're not, it's on the screen, all right? It's on the screen. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Micah, not Hosea, actually Hosea too. Micah was a contemporary of the prophets Isaiah and Hosea. Now you can kind of see where there was the confusion. Micah was a contemporary with the prophets Isaiah and Hosea. They were all about the, the same time. Isaiah and Hosea were a bit better known than Micah, but nonetheless important to the mission of God. Now, if you'll remember, if, you, if you're familiar, fairly familiar with the Old Testament, you'll remember that at this time in Israel's history, the kingdom of God is divided into, uh, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two different kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom called Israel, and you have the southern kingdom called Judah. And Micah's primary ministry is in the southern kingdom of Judah. But Micah's message, if you read throughout, the, throughout his book, is to the entirety of God's people. He writes, he's writing to a time in which things seem to be going quite well in the kingdom. In the first half of the, of the century, you'll remember a man by the name from Isaiah's uh, prophecy, a man by the name of King Uzziah. You remember from Isaiah 6, that famous call that uh, Isaiah gets on his, from the year when Q King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. You remember that? So from the first half of the century, King Uzziah had led God's people into a time of prosperity. And during this time of prosperity, there was an established upper class in Israel. Now, unfortunately, the Israelites used this time of prosperity to establish also at the same time what happens fair, uh, far too often, a time of injustice. So God had established for his people uh, land allotments for all the various tribes. And what the upper class instead did is they went and they began to buy up all of these land allotments. So they were no longer allotted to all the different tribes the way they were supposed to be. And so there was this great land grab in all the people. And so you had God's people who were, had not received the land that they were supposed to have rightly received. And there were, was great oppression of the poor among God's people. And this was being perpetuated by the leadership and the religious establishment and the kings in Israel. And so you have the prophet of Micah, the prophet Micah raised up by God to go and to preach to God, by, uh, preach to God's people that God is going to bring judgment to his people. That God is not going to stand by and watch this oppression of the poor in his people. God is not going to stand by and watch this injustice take hold. God is not okay, even though it appears on the surface that there is prosperity. Even though it appears on the surface that there is peace. Even though God's people believed that there was the blessing of God. Even though God's people believed on the surface that there was the hand of God. In fact, the judgment of God was coming. In fact, the anger and the wrath 
of God was coming. And so Micah is going to a people in prosperity. Micah is going to a people in peace. Micah is going to a people who have reduced God, reduced God, see if this sounds familiar, reduced God to a religious grandpa whose job is to bring blessing, whose job is to bring wealth, whose job is simply to sign off on their every wish and he is coming on behalf to say they have misunderstood God, they have placed God in a corner and said that God is to just sign off on their every wish, to give them their every wealth, to give them all that they want and instead God is about to interrupt their time of peace, interrupt their time of prosperity and bring wrath, judgment and hardship into the midst of Israel and Judah. And so listen to the words that he says. He says, muster up your troops. Muster up, O Israel. Muster up your boys. Now, there's a specific way that he's saying that. There's a specific way that, that Micah is saying that. Here, the reason that he says muster them up is he's saying it's about to get dire. It's about, times are about to be dire. Times are about to be desperate, okay? This isn't, this isn't gird your loins. This isn't get, gather your warriors. This is muster up every boy you can find. This is, this is, this is find, find every old man you can find. This is, go to every nook and cranny, find every willing fighting man. You, you better scrape together every militia man, every minute man, every possible fighting man, because it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. You see, this is, uh, mo most commentators believe that he's talking about the siege of, of a king of Assyria called Sennacherib. Sennacherib. And, and this is a real siege that takes place at about 701 BC. And it's a, a siege that lays into the people of Israel that is going to bring devastation to the entirety of the kingdom. And he's saying to them, he's saying to them, the threat is imminent. He, do, do you notice here, do you notice here in 5.1, he says, the siege is laid against us. Do you notice that, 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 Micah includes himself in this. This isn't one day. This isn't you people. This is us. This is us. This is in the, this is in the first person plural here. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be a part of this. Unfortunately, I'm going to bear witness to this. Unfortunately, I'm going to be included in this. this. The threat is imminent. The threat is imminent. He's, he's saying that, He's saying that the, the, the judge will be struck on the face with the rod. You know what he's saying there? The king at this time is a man by, the king of Judah, Judah is a man by the name of Hezekiah. After uh, about three kings in Judah during the time of, uh, of Micah, this is actually the best one of them. And what he's saying is, is that our king is about to be humiliated. Our king is about to be humiliated. This is what he means. Our king's not going to be wearing a crown. Our king is not going to be seen in his military might. 
Our king is not going to be surrounded by his soldiers. Our king is not going to be surrounded by his guards. Our king is not going to be surrounded by his imperial court. Our king is going to be stripped of his robe. Our king is going to be stripped of his throne. Our king is going to be stripped of his crown. He is going to be bound down and he is going to be beaten with a rod. Our king is going to be left to be humiliated. Our king is going to be left to be utterly beaten like a slave, defenseless. Do you see this? He's saying the judgment of God is coming. The judgment of God is coming. And the judgment of God is coming at the hands of the Assyrians. The judgment of God is coming. And the judgment of God is coming at the hands of Sennacherib. Now, you can imagine preaching like this, that the prophets weren't the most popular guys in town, okay? Uh, as a matter of fact, Israel kind of has a long history. If you'll remember when we were preaching in, uh, in Matthew chapter 23, you, re you remember when, when Jesus is, is calling down the woe to you statements, you remember that? Uh, of, the, of the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders, remember that? And, and, and Jesus says, you say that you wouldn't stone your prophets, but you're really killing me. You remember, you remember he says that? He says that you say you're not like your fathers and that you wouldn't stone Zechariah in the temple. It's because Israel has this long history. Like God raises up a preacher and the preacher would tell them what they didn't really want to hear. He would tell them the truth. He would speak on behalf of God and he would say, you are in sin and you, are, you must turn away from your wicked or, wickedness or God is going to bring judgment to you. And you know what they would do? They would take him outside of town and they would beat him with rods and they would hit him with rocks and they would, or they would kill him. The, the, the prophets are not popular people. And it's because they had things to say like this. They had things to say like this. That the military of our enemy is going to come in at the hand of God, no less. And he is going to they're going to come in and they're going to bring not prosperity. They're going to bring not peace. God is not going to bring victory. Rather, God is going to use them as the arm of his judgment. God is going to use them as the arm of his justice. We oppress the poor and God is going to allow as a result the, the Assyrians to oppress us. But, but every time the prophets preach, as hard as their words were to hear, as difficult as their message was, there was always hope. There was always a glimmer of hope. There was always a message of underlying joy. There was always as, as a message of underlying life. And we see that here in Micah's message. We see that in verse 2. Look, read verse 2 with me. But... You see the contrasting word there, right? But, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. From ancient days. So you see there was a time in which blessing in Israel was apparent. There was a time in which the blessing was apparent. There was a time in Israel in which the giants fell and the enemies were slain and the king led them in war and in worship. There was a time in Israel in which the king didn't oppress the poor. There was a time in Israel in which the king didn't take part in leading the people of God into idolatry, but rather the king led the people of God in repentance. 
There was a time in Israel in which the, the king didn't lead the people of God to worship a false god, but rather the king led the people of God to build altars to the living God. There was a time in Israel in which the king called, wrote psalms and hymns of praise that was the songbook, the hymn book for the people of God, rather than causing the people of God to look down their noses at their poorer brothers and sisters. There was a time in Israel in which the king was the was the, was the benevolent king rather than the benefactor of the poor. There was a time in which the king would go out and find a man like Mephibosheth who could not feed himself, who could not walk and take care of himself and would bring him to the king's table and care for him and love on him because he was a king that had received the generosity of God himself. It was in great contrast to the current regime. It was in great contrast to the current leadership in Israel. You see, that was the Davidic king. That was David's reign. That was the time in which David had slain Goliath, been anointed by Samuel. That was the time in which David had established the Israel empire. That was the time in which David had done that which only God himself could do. That was the time in which the king would lead you into war and then lead you in worship and then lead you to the throne of God and when he sinned, lead you in repentance. It was a different time time they had wanted Saul you remember they had wanted a king that looked like a king they had wanted a king that had the pedigree they had wanted a king that had the impressive sterling war record they had wanted a king that when you when you looked at him he looked like all the other nations king but Saul Saul trembled when he saw Goliath. He hid, right? As a matter of fact, Saul was prepared to deliver his people over to the Philistines. Saul, God commanded him to destroy the Amalekites, all of them, in the entirety. But, but what did Saul do? Saul spared Agag. Saul kept the best of the spoils. said he was going to sacrifice them over to the Lord. And you know what Saul proved? He wasn't, a, he wasn't submissive to God. Saul believed he was king over God. And God removed his hand from Saul. You see, they thought they knew better than God. The people of God did. They wanted Saul. But God, God, he went to this tiny little town, this tiny little town, not the metropolis, not the impressive Jerusalem. He went to this tiny little town called Bethlehem. It says uh, right here in verse two, it says it doesn't even belong on a map. It doesn't even belong on a map. This little tribe you've never heard of. And talk about pedigree. Do y'all know who David's great grandmother was? A Moabite woman named Ruth. Not exactly a purebred, right? Moabite woman named Ruth. Samuel the prophet goes into Jesse's house. Says, the Lord told me one of your sons is going to be the king. Says, okay, brings his first seven sons up. Surely it's one of these, right? Can't be my runt. Can't be my runt. Brings the seven sons up before him. And Samuel says, the Lord has said, it's none of these boys. 
It's none of these boys. Do you not have any more, Jesse? Do you not have any more, Jesse? I've got one more, but it can't be him. He's out taking care of the sheep. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. Bring me that one. The Lord anoints the boy. Not impressive. No record to look at. No pedigree to impress. No, no degrees to put upon the wall. No education to cause someone to stand in awe. Just the anointing of God and the call of God and the devotion of his heart and his life. See, every time Israel gets what they want, they destroy themselves. But when they get what God has for them, when they get what God has for them, when they get what God has set aside for them, when they get what God has anointed for them, when they get what God has planted for them, oh, brothers and sisters, they come into a time of protection. They come into a time of prosperity. They come into a time of worship in which there is no explanation except that the Lord, the Lord God, and do you know what verse two is teaching us? There's a greater David coming. There is a greater David coming. Right now, the right now, Assyria is coming. Right now, Sennacherib is coming. Right now, the judgment of God is coming. Right now, the siege is coming. Right now, the wrath of God is coming. But soon, soon, look through the darkness to the hope of the preacher of Micah. Look through the darkness to the light that is on the other side because there is a greater David coming. There is a David, David coming that will slay a giant that is far larger than Goliath. There is one coming that will be born in this tiny town of Bethlehem and laid in a bed of hay who will be the very son of God that will slay that giant of sin that every man and woman and boy and girl has faced and has crushed. The heart that is in every one of them that is desperately wicked, that is harder than granite, will be taken from them when they repent and place their faith in Him. You see, brothers and sisters, this is far better than what they deserve. You see that? This is far better than what they deserve. They, they deserve the judgment. They deserve Sennacherib's siege. They deserve the exile of Babylon that's coming 150 years later. They deserve it. They deserve the withdrawal of God's hand and God's blessing. They deserve the execution of God's wrath. They deserve a serious attack. They deserve the forsaking of God. They deserve. But this is the gospel in Micah. Do you see it? This is the gospel in Micah. This is the hopeful message of Micah. God is going to deliver his own people from what they deserve. God is going to deliver his own people from what they deserve. God is going to deliver them from his own wrath by his own provision. 
God is going to deliver them from his own wrath by his own provision because there is another David coming. There is another son coming. There is another baby going to be born in Bethlehem. There is his own boy going to be born in a, and placed in a manger. And that baby will be the baby of hope. He will deliver them from the judgment. He will deliver them from their hopelessness. He will deliver them from this day of darkness. He will deliver them from this day of despair. He will deliver them from this day of despondency. He will deliver them from this day of wickedness. He will deliver them from their famine. He will deliver them. So as they send their boys off to war, as they send their husbands off to war, as they send their children off to war, they look through the darkness and they see the baby. Oh, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, what about you? What about you? Friends and neighbors, some of you don't even know how you got here this morning. Can I tell you something? I'm glad you're here. I don't know what it took to get you here. I don't know, I don't know how, what your mama had to say, what, you, what your husband or your wife had to say to get you here. I'm just thankful that you're here. Can I tell you that, that, that you, you deserve the wrath and the justice of God. You deserve that. I don't have to convince you that you've sinned against God. I don't have to convince you of that. You know that. That's the bad news. But the good news is, is that there was a baby that was born in Bethlehem. He has come and he has come so that through that darkness, through that judgment, through that wrath, through that injustice, you can see light so that you cannot get what you deserve. So that instead you can get what he deserves, which is the inheritance of his goodness, the inheritance of his righteousness, the inheritance of the kingdom that comes from his father. The prosperity of the greater David. The prosperity of the greater David. Micah says that this has been a long time coming. Do you notice this? At the end of verse two, he says, who's coming forth is from of old, from, from ancient days. From of old, from, from ancient days. So if you, if you were here with us about five and a half years ago, we started this series in Matthew, right? And by the way, we're wrapping that baby up about Easter, all right? So, so, so hang, hang with me, man. And then we're gonna get into Philippians and we're gonna get to that one pretty quick, all right? We're gonna get to that one pretty quick. So, so if, you were with, if you were with us about five years ago, it was actually at Christmas time, we, we started uh, in the first of December with a genealogy. And, and if I remember, you guys weren't super fired up about us starting and preaching through a genealogy. But, but Matthew starts that way. He starts with a genealogy at the beginning of his gospel, all right? And he starts that way because it was incredibly important to the Jewish people. It was incredibly important, why? Why? This isn't Christians interpreting scripture. This is Jews interpreting scripture. And the way Jews interpreted scripture is that they understood that the Messiah had to come from the lineage of David, that his genealogy was everything. It was everything, all right? And so Matthew establishes that Jesus' genealogy is, is anchored in David. As a matter of fact, the reason that we're talking about uh, Micah chapter 5 right now is because Matthew talks about it in Matthew chapter 2, right? He tells us, this is a messianic passage, right? 
uh, in, his, in, in his gospel. And so he starts right there in, in chapter one, talking about this genealogy and anchoring it uh, and, and pointing us all the way back to, to uh, Jesus's heritage to David. And that's what this is talking about. That, that Jesus has this rich family history that goes all the way back to David. But, but this language says it's even more than that. It's ancient. It's ancient. It goes way back. As a matter of fact, that word ancient can mean even eternal. Like, like it goes way, way, way back. This is old school, man. So this is, this is what I think he's saying. God has made some promises. God has made some promises. His coming is going to feel like a long time coming. This is what Mike says. His coming is going to feel like a long time coming, but it's been a long time coming. In the garden, in the garden, Eve had eaten of the fruit. Do you remember the curse that God gives to Eve? He gives to Eve and he says, like, the serpent is going to bruise your heel, but what? But your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. You know what he's saying? The seed of Eve, the seed of Eve that is going to crush the head of the serpent is coming to Bethlehem. He's coming to Bethlehem. Then do you remember what happens? In Babel, you have, in, you have Babel. And in Babel, you have, they, they build this great tower. They, they, the human ingenuity, right? And they're going to get to God and, and humans come together with this great ingenuity and they're going to they're build this tower and they're going to get to where God and, and prove their brilliance and God crushes the tower and he confuses mankind and he, this division comes among us and they're scattered and divided with language and all. And the very next thing that happens is what? God makes a promise to Abraham. And he says, I have just divided man and I have just confused man and I've brought division. But through you, there is going to be a seed of one of your sons that I'm going to, and through him, I'm going to bless all nations, all peoples, all languages. And you know what he's saying right here is that the seed through whom God is going to bless all nations, the seed of Abraham, he's coming to Bethlehem. He's going to be placed in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger there in Bethlehem. He made a promise to David. He made a promise to David. He said, I'm going to establish your throne forever. The throne is soon to be abdicated. The throne is soon to be cleared. It looks as though the promise is in flux, but the seed of David, the throne that will endure forever, the son, the child of David, he's coming to Bethlehem. He will be born in Bethlehem and placed in a manger. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus' advent gives us the hope we need when God's will feels like it's a long time coming. Jesus' advent gives us the hope we need when God's will feels like it's a long time coming. Now, you'll remember what, what I've told you is happening in the background right here, right? That you have these people and, and they're just kind of living and doing whatever, they, whatever sees fit. That their, their worship is almost like just kind of like a matter of function. Like they're going out and they're just getting while the getting's good. They're kind of seeing what's in front of them and just living for what's in front of them. And then they just kind of go to church on Saturday, like, you know, like worship's on Saturday for them. Like, they're just going to work, church on Saturday and like, God bless it if you want to. If you don't, I'm just going to go do my thing and, uh, and I'm going to make as much as I can make and buy as much as I can buy and have as much as I can have. And then if you, you do whatever you want to do, but that's what I'm going to do. But honestly, can you blame them? Can you blame them? They've got all of these promises for God, from God. 
They've got all these promises from God. And, and the truth is, is centuries have come and gone. Generation has come and generation has gone. Millennia has, millennium has come and millennium has gone. And it doesn't feel like they're ever going to be answered. It doesn't feel like the promises are ever going to come true. It doesn't feel like the promises are ever going to be fulfilled. So at that point, you just trust what you can see. You just get what you can buy. You just make what you can earn. You just do what you can do. And if you're old school enough, if you've been around long enough, you just kind of go through the religious motions. You just do the religious thing. And the younger that you are, the, 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 new, the newer age that you are, your kids, you kind of let them off the hook a little more and a little more. And you just kind of hold on to the ancestry of the thing and the tradition of the thing. But you just keep doing it. Can you really blame them? That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. And so what, what, what Micah is saying, what Micah is saying is, do you remember David? There's a new David coming. It's been a long time coming. It's gonna be a long time coming, but we can trust in the faithfulness of God. We can trust that the Christ is coming. We can trust that the Messiah is coming. Brothers and sisters, do you realize we have the privilege of looking through the view and the perspective of not the Christ that is coming, but the Christ that has come? The Christ that has come? But this is exactly how we live? This is exactly how we live? Let us get while the getting is good. Yes, I know that the preacher always says that Jesus is coming back one day, but I don't think I'll ever see it. Everybody keeps telling me that. Everybody keeps saying that, but apparently that's not real. And in the back of our minds, we think, well, maybe not. Probably not. Is that real? And so some of us are a little more old school than others. And so we hold on to that promise and like, I'll hold on to it, but I'm not really going to make my kids. Right? Like, I'll live for God, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna impose that upon my children kind of thing, right? Like, like, I'll hold on to the traditions of the faith because it's the ancestry of my family, but I'm not, I'm not, really, I'm not really gonna impassionately pass that on to the next generation because I don't really know that I believe it's true. Brothers and sisters, do we not see that the coming of Christ the first time is the assurance of the coming of Christ the second time? Do we not see that the first advent is the assurance of the second advent? Oh, brothers and sisters, don't let us be lulled into sleep by our own complacency. Don't let us be lulled into sleep by our own compromises. Don't let us learn from the mistakes of the Israelites. Let us learn, brothers and sisters, and let us live vigilantly. Let us live faithfully. Let us commit ourselves to live lives of faith and confidence in the coming Christ because of the Christ that came. Because of the Christ that came. He was a long time coming, but he came. And he's a long time coming, but he's going to come. Oh, brothers and sisters, commit yourselves to Christ. I think there's something more here, though. There's a shadow of deity. There's a shadow of deity that I think must have been in Micah's mind. The word ancient there can mean eternal. I think here at the forefront of Micah's mind is a, is a chronological human genealogy, but, the, but that word ancient there can mean eternal. And so I think 
what he's trying to say there is he wants us to trace it back, not just to David, not just to Father Abraham, not even to Eve, but all the way back to the Godhead. That as the, as the Nicene Creed would say, that, that he is very God of very God, that he is the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things have been made, that he doesn't find his beginning in David, he doesn't find his beginning in Abraham, and he doesn't find his beginning in, in Adam, and even fact, he has no beginning at all. He is eternal God. He was God in the beginning and with God in the beginning. He is the son of God himself. This is the Messiah, the risen Christ, the coming Christ, the eternal Christ that is to come. The Jews certainly knew. But he says, until then, there will be difficult days ahead. There will be difficult days. He says, therefore, he shall give them up until the time. Do you know what that means? I'm going to give them, that God is going to give them over to their desires. He's going to give them over to their desires. Verse 3. He's going to give them over to what they want. You know what the, do you know what the greatest condemnation is that God could do in your life? Give you exactly what you want. Give you exactly what you want. People talk about God Pharaoh, uh, hardening Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. And they cannot comprehend how God could have hardened anyone's heart. Do you know what God had to do to harden Pharaoh's heart? Nothing. Nothing. He had to not soften it. God doesn't have to do anything to harden your heart. You harden your heart naturally. Jeremiah 17 says that our hearts are desperately wicked, exceedingly wicked. So they do what is right in their own eyes. So God gives them up to their own depraved desires until the time of Christ, until the time in which the baby will be born. He gives them over to the to the, uh, to the Assyrian attack of Sennacherib, he miraculously delivers, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter, or Second Kings chapter 19, I would commend to you, it's incredible. He delivers Jerusalem from Sennacherib remar uh, miraculously by slaying 180,000 uh, of his, uh, of, of his soldiers with, a, with the angel of the Lord. So he protects Jerusalem, though many of the cities fall, fall. 150 years later, gives them over to Babylon. But God had promised the throne of David would endure, and in this, the throne of David is abdicated, taken away from him. It's cleared out until the time of Christ, until Christ is returned, until the new David comes onto the scene, until the new child is born in Bethlehem, until that stable is filled with a crying baby, until the swaddling cloths are holding the Son of God. So think about the status of things. The covenant God has made with his people has been so flagrantly violated by the people of God, God should withdraw from the covenant. God's people have been so idolatrous and unfaithful that God should disown them altogether. The covenant that God has made with David has been so unfaithfully kept that God should obliterate the throne of David forever. The covenant God has made with his people has been completely and totally humiliated. So what is God going to do? What is God going to do in the midst of all of it, in all of the humiliation, in all of the shame to his name, in all of the utter disgrace? 
He's going to make it all new. He's going to make it all new. Y'all, he's going to make it all new. He's going to make Israel new. He's going to make Jerusalem new. He's going to make David new. He's going to make the throne new. He's going to make the covenant new. He's going to make it all new. He ought to obliterate all of it. He ought to annihilate the world, all of it. He ought to wipe it clean, all of it. So what does God do? What does the gracious, steadfast, loving, good God do? He makes it new. That is what our God does. That is who He is. That is the goodness of His character. Do you see it? Do you see it? What does he do? We have a divided kingdom. We have Israel and we have Judah. He says, now, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What is he saying? I'm going to bring them all back together because I'm making it new. Then what does he say at the end of verse 4? They shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. I'm going to bring them together and then what I'm going to do? I'm going to send it to the ends of the earth. I'm bringing my kingdom together and I'm expanding its boundaries to the ends of the earth. The new Israel isn't going to be a tiny little landlocked country. It's going to be the nations, man. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, all of it. Babel is coming together baby it's all of us coming together in the name of Christ David David's throne is going to be abdicated but I'm bringing it to look at verse 4 and he shall stand as shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God who was David who was David David was the shepherd king he wasn't some warrior king he was the shepherd king he went out there and he fought the lions and he fought the bear and he did not flinch when he looked death in the eye he went to the glide before the great giant and he looked and he swung the he slung the sling and he did not flinch when he looked death in the eye and who is Christ the new and the greater David he will look our death in the eye as he walks up Calvary and he will not flinch brothers and sisters as he looks my death and your death my sin and your sin in the eye and he will slay our giant he will slay our lion he will slay our bear brothers and sisters because he is the new and the greater shepherd king do you see this he is the new David sitting upon the new throne of David and do you see what he will bring do you see it y'all aren't excited because you don't see it Y'all aren't excited because you don't see it. Verse 5, verse 5 and 6 are basically saying the same thing twice. And he shall be their peace. Huh? <laughs> huh? It talks about Nimrod. You know who Nimrod is? Nimrod king, was the king over a region that encompassed Assyria and Babylon, the two remaining enemies of Israel. He not is going to bring peace. He isn't bringing peace. He is peace. Do you see this? What is the most difficult, impossible thing for us to achieve on this earth? It is peace. This is not just abstract, out there peace. This is the word shalom. You've probably heard this word shalom. This is inner, 
known, tangible, concrete peace. Who does Isaiah, the prophet at the same time, call Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9? He is the prince of peace. And he is bringing a forever, everlasting peace to the new Jerusalem, to the new earth, to the new Israel. And he will reign from the benevolent new throne of David. So much so that when he is born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, all of the heavens will not be able to stand it. And they will burst forth with many angels declaring in a song, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Because peace has arrived, my brothers. And peace has arrived, my sisters. Because one day, this church, we are pressing on toward peace. And we can have peace now, but we will have peace forever. We will have peace on that day. Your unrest will be wiped from your face. Your angst will be wiped from your spirit. Your unrest will be wiped from your home. And you will be under the benevolent rule of the Prince of Peace forever. He has come and He is coming again. Let us pray together.